Hello, and welcome back to the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. My name is Zaid Wahab, and today we are going to discuss the Ummah's foreign affairs under Harun al-Rashid. Effectively, this will be all about the war between the Caliphate and the Byzantine Empire, with a bit of material on an attack by the Khazars and a few mentions of the Caliph's relationship with other powers at the time. Although tensions between the Greeks and the Arabs had eased palpably since the Abbasid Revolution, al-Rashid brought back the struggle against the Christian Empire in a big way, portraying his crusade against them as an important part of Islam itself. At least, that's what we hear in some questionable testimony, and we'll explore why we might want to be a little bit more critical with accounts of this nature. Episode 51 Holy Warrior Out of the many things Harun al-Rashid is admired for in Arab history, his power, his wisdom, his fabulous wealth, his tireless campaigns against the Byzantines rank all the way up on that long list and might even be what people associate with his memory the most. With al-Rashid in charge, all of a sudden it goes unquestioned that relentless warring against these ancient foes wasn't just a natural stance for the Ummah to take, but one of the caliph's foremost responsibilities, and a sure mark of his religious devotion. It's such a slick transformation that it mostly goes without comment, but if war against the Byzantines had always been one of the caliph's core duties, did that mean that all of al-Rashid's predecessors had fallen short? There is certainly no indication that the relative peacefulness on that front during their reigns upset anyone. In fact, The only religious-sounding political demands we come across during the early Abbasid dynasty were the ones their Hashemite kin made for a descendant of the Prophet to lead the Caliphate instead, usually shortly before they were slaughtered. The closer we look at this newfound celebration of hostility against the Byzantines under al-Rashid, the less sense it makes. There is definitely more activity on the battlefield during his time in charge, but there were also periods of truce. Much of the action was pretty limited, and the big stuff ultimately didn't lead to any lasting advantage for the caliphate. I think there's something more going on with our history, and after covering all we have on the subject, we'll examine how the effects of state propaganda may be to blame for distorting the way al-Rashid was captured for posterity. Since the Byzantines are a big part of our story today, I'm going to step outside our histories a little to augment what we find in the Arab sources. I'm no expert on the subject, however, and will just be relying on some material left to us by a Greek priest historian who was around during these war-filled years, Theophanes the Confessor, and another named George the Monk, who lived about a century later, closer in time to the earliest Arab authors. Let's open with a short recap of what's been going on with the Byzantines vis-à-vis their struggle against the Caliphate. There's probably no reason to go all the way back to the days of the rightly guided Caliphs, 
and even Umayyad times can be summed up in a few short sentences. Things went pretty bad for the Byzantines up until about 720, when Leo III became emperor and successfully defended his capital from a badly organized Arab campaign. Over the next decade or so, the Byzantines regained their vigor on the battlefield, while the Arabs suffered through a string of lousy caliphs. By the time Hisham was comfortably in control, well-drawn battle lines had emerged, with the Ummah establishing defensive positions along the Cilician plain and in the mountains further east, places like Marash, Al-Hadath, and Malatya, all three of which we've mentioned in passing before. The Byzantine emperor Constantine V took good advantage of the Third Fitna and the Abbasid Revolution, using their chaos to raid and demolish several of these Arab fortifications, though he never ventured further into the caliphate and the Arabs invariably rebuilt their positions. Constantine's son, Leo the Khazar, did mount an invasion of Syria early in al-Mahdi's reign, but things went downhill for the empire in a hurry after his sudden death of fever in the year 780. Leo's successor was meant to be his nine-year-old son, Constantine VI. Given his youth, however, his mother Irina ruled as empress consort in his stead, and although she will last way longer than anyone counted on, the precariousness of this arrangement led to more instability than usual. I'm just speculating here, but it may have been a contributing factor to the defection of a key Byzantine general to the Arab side during Harun al-Rashid's victorious invasion in 782. His campaign ended with Irena agreeing to pay the Ummah tens of thousands of gold coins every year, a triumph which boosted the young al-Rashid's reputation within the caliphate and earned him a place in the Abbasid line of succession. It's not clear whether this truce was just a way for the empress to bide her time, or if the sum simply exceeded what the Byzantine treasury could afford. Either way, Irena decided to stop paying tribute three years later in 785, the year al-Mahdi passed away, perhaps incidentally, perhaps not. The Arab response was a small campaign into Byzantine Armenia, with no real follow-through after that. So, in 786, just a few months before Harun came to power, the empire took things a step further. The Byzantines raised Al-Hadath, or Adata, that frontier fort which Al-Mahdi had rebuilt following its previous sacking by Leo. The Arabs mounted a summer raid that year as well, their first since the short-lived truce with the empire, and our sources don't say very much about what was probably a very limited operation. This was the state of affairs which Harun al-Rashid inherited when he became caliph. Now, although his mother, al-Khayzuran, and his mentor, wazir, Yahya al-Barmaki, ran the state during his early years, we are told al-Rashid took a deep interest in Byzantine affairs. This makes sense, considering his background. After all, he had achieved renown for his successful exploits against the empire about five years earlier. His first move was a bold reorganization of the northwestern border of the caliphate, combining northern Syria and Mesopotamia into a new province named Al-Awasim, or the Strongholds, with its capital at Menbij. Arabs were encouraged to move there, and some tribes and communities were relocated wholesale. Whereas other provinces had to send money back to Iraq, 
tax revenue from Al-Awasim was used entirely to finance its defense. The caliph was so invested that at some point in his reign, Al-Rashid even relocated his court from Baghdad to Al-Raqqa in central Syria to be closer to the action against the Byzantines. You can find a map on the episode's page detailing the region between the two powers and highlighting some of the locations I've mentioned thus far. The creation of Al-Awasim took place around the time of the Ummah's first major assault into Byzantine territory, in 788, two years into Al-Rashid's reign. The Arab sources don't really have much to say about this, actually, and they treat it like any other summer raid, or Sa'ifa. Al-Tabari, for example, only notes the name of the commander who led it. We know it was a bigger deal for the Byzantines, because Theophanes, the confessor, says it was the battle at which two of the empire's most powerful armies were defeated, leading to the loss of several capable commanders. While it was by no means devastating, and had taken place not too far from the usual battlegrounds, this engagement marks an unmistakable escalation. Previous confrontations tended to be short, quick raids, and this was a pitched battle between two armies out in the open. The Byzantines were on the back foot from then on out, and no major assaults from them are recorded in Arab history. Instead, we hear about regular summer raids every year from 790 to 797, which not coincidentally were the years Constantine VI had managed to wrest power from his mother and rule without the empress consort. Irena does return to power, however, and that makes her a doubly fascinating figure. I casually mentioned that she gouged her son's eyes out in the last episode, and while all this material is outside my usual area, let's briefly explore her story together. When she had first ascended, following her husband's death, most of the Byzantine court expected Irena to take on a small ceremonial role. She seems to have been a canny politician, though, and in time she outmaneuvered those who intended to limit her authority. Given that she was ruling in the name of her son, who at the time was nine years old, she had an interest in maintaining this arrangement for as long as possible. She managed to squeeze a good ten years of power out of it, ruling from 780 to 790. Irina pushed for her own policies, even when they clashed with those of her predecessors. One touchy issue was the empire's major ideological split the veneration of icons. Some held that it was a religious duty, and these people were known as iconodules. Others, that it was a sin, and we call these folks iconoclasts. Iconoclasm was fervently pursued by the popular Constantine V and Leo the Khazar towards the end of his time in charge. Irina disagreed, and she convened two church councils to restore the practice, the second of which succeeded, and was attended by Theophanes the Confessor, an iconodule himself. This wasn't permanent, however. Iconoclasm did come back with a vengeance, and lasted another century or so. The 150 years between 717 and 867 are referred to as the Byzantine Age of Iconoclasm. I know I've done a lousy job explaining the issue here, but I only noted it for two reasons to begin with. 
The first is to present another possible explanation for why things were so chaotic during the reigns of Irina and her son. The second is because something similar will soon hit the caliphate. An ideological split over whether the word of God was temporal or eternal. Like the Byzantine debate, it looks religious on the face of it, but conceals a far more mundane set of political motivations underneath. It's still a generation away, though, so don't worry about it for now. I'll let you know when we get there. Another interesting thing about Irina actually ties into a topic we'll bring up towards the end of the episode, her relationship to the budding Carolingian Empire. Charlemagne won't become the first Holy Roman Emperor until the year 800, but already in the 780s we find Irina trying to establish matrimonial ties with his house, initially by offering to become his wife, then by proposing a marriage between her son and his daughter. These weren't some half-baked notions, either. It seems like the first proposal was only frustrated by a member of Irina's court, and the second was scuppered by the empress herself, who worried that the formalization of those ties would give her son Constantine more power than she could keep in check. She called the engagement off in the late 80s, and by 790, a mutiny by some deeply iconoclast troops removed Irina from power and installed Constantine on the throne. Constantine VI had a rough time as emperor, and his Wikipedia page reads like a great telenovela plot. His armies constantly lost to the Arabs on the battlefield, and the warring was so one-sided that al-Rashid himself led the summer raid in 797, the first time he did so during his reign. Given his strong reputation as the warrior caliph, I was surprised that it took him this long, about a dozen years, to personally lead an attack, and that the affair he chose was so tame. Anyway, it wasn't the caliph's wrath which ended. Anyway, it wasn't the caliph's wrath which brought an end to the emperor, it was his mother's. In the same year Al-Rashid led the Sa'ifa, 797, Irina managed to organize a conspiracy to capture, imprison, blind, and then exile her son. You heard that right, but before you recoil at how uniquely evil this was, you should know that it was like standard operating procedure at the time, and Constantine had done the same to his uncles, then some religious figures who had protested, and finally a few of his generals as well. It's worth remembering that Harun's mother, Al-Khayzuran, was also accused of murdering her son, Al-Hadi. While I dismissed the idea that Al-Khayzuran had anything to do with her son's death by saying that history loves to blame powerful women, Irina's is one of the few cases in which we find a preponderance of evidence for such a shocking deed. After seven years away from power, one of the first things Irina did now that she was back in charge was enter into a new truce with the Arabs. And starting in 798, we don't hear about any more raids from their side. This peace gave her some room to deal with the Bulgars and other threats to her realm, it provided the Ummah with tribute once again, and it presents us with the perfect opportunity to leave Byzantium to discuss another old foe of the Caliphate who began acting up that same year, the Khazars. Al-Tabari has two stories about how this latest war with the Khazars got started. 
neither of which is very believable. The entertaining one says that the war was a result of an unfortunate tragedy compounded by misunderstanding. One of the caliph's closest associates, Al-Fadl ibn Yahya al-Barmaki, had been trying to forge an alliance with the Khazars. He was about to formalize things by marrying their chief's daughter, except she died suddenly, either en route, just before the wedding, or in childbirth. Her Khazar attendants returned home and led or allowed the chief to believe that the Arabs were to blame for his daughter's death, making an invasion the very next year inevitable. Believe it or not, we came across the same fanciful tale as the reason for a sudden Khazar raid during al-Mansur's days back in 760. I just decided to leave it out as we had too much else going on at the time. It must have been a popular bit of oral history because the story is exactly the same in every way, well, except for the groom. The slightly less dramatic explanation says that the war started after the Abbasid governor of Armenia personally beheaded an astrologer with an axe. The accounts differ on whether this guy was a prominent Arab, a popular Khazar, or a revered Christian, but what they agree on is that his son went to the Khazars for help, and they responded by unleashing their worst assault on the caliphate yet. These explanations are all obviously problematic, and even if we try to pick them apart for themes to go on, we can't establish a strong level of confidence in our conclusion. Whatever provoked the Khazars, their invasion was beyond painful for the Ummah. Luckily, the damage was restricted to Armenia, which to the Arabs was Transcaucasia, or everything between the Black and the Caspian Seas. Fun fact, though I suspect I may have mentioned this once before, the Arab name for the Caspian was the Sea of the Khazars. The few details we hear about their assault are hard to believe, but they say that over 100,000 were enslaved and untold others killed by the fearsome invaders, leading al-Tabari, who rarely ever comments on the accounts he relays, to note that the scale of the calamity was unheard of in the history of Islam until then. Not that there's ever a good time for a disaster of this magnitude, but it happened right after a dangerous Karajite rebellion in nearby Jazeera had just been put down at great cost so Al-Rashid was understandably distressed by all this bad news coming from the north. He put a pair of his best commanders in charge of the response, Yazid al-Shaybani and Khuzayma ibn Khazim. Yazid al-Shaybani was no stranger to the region. Nephew of the vaunted Ma'an ibn Za'idah al-Shaybani, Yazid was the chief of a Mesopotamian tribe, and he had served as Al-Rashid's governor of Armenia before for a couple years in the late 780s. His tenure there was remembered for its cruel treatment of the native populations, especially his persecution of Christians and their places of worship. We find noticeably more material about this sort of sectarian violence in al-Rashid's reign, and I'm speculating again here, but I think the repeated campaigns against the Byzantines during his reign inflamed anti-Christian sentiment and encouraged the Ummah's leadership to take a harsher stance against Christians. Yazid was also the general who had put down the recent Karajite rebellion in Jazeera, so he'd sort of become the caliph's go-to guy when it came to the Ummah's north. We're told that Khuzayma ibn Khazim remained in Nisibis with the reserves, while Yazid al-Shaybani took a year or so to drive the Khazars back where they'd come from. 
Some captives were freed, but instead of any major battles between the two, we hear only of small skirmishes, ambushes, and strategic retreats. Like the Arabs themselves, the Khazars were more interested in raiding than conquering, and it is reasonable to assume that they headed back across the mountains after Abbasid resistance began to stiffen. They rarely come up in our sources from here on out, making this the last recorded confrontation between the Khazars and the Ummah in Arab history. Now that we're done with that brief and violent interlude, let us return to the Byzantines. Irina's second reign lasted only five years, and in 802 her ambitious finance minister Nikephoros found enough supporters in court to usurp the throne. He quickly reversed most of her policies, an important one for our purposes being his ending of the truce between the empire and the caliphate. We're about to start an entertaining tale that has been somewhat mythologized in Arab history, and it's worth noting how both the Arabic and Byzantine sources relay what's about to take place. I'll start with the well-known version found in Al-Tabari before turning to what George the Monk says about the same war. Al-Tabari tells us that Nikephorus wrote an insulting letter to Harun al-Rashid, and the story is so well known that I readily came across an English translation online. The letter went, quote, From Nikephoros, king of the Greeks, to Harun, king of the Arabs. The empress who preceded me considered you a rook and herself a pawn. She agreed to pay a tribute that was twice what you yourself should have been paying to her. So much for a woman's weakness and stupidity. As soon as you have read my letter, refund to us all that you have received from Irina, and in addition, send as much more as possible as a ransom. For if you do not, the sword shall lay between us. I love the different ways in which our oral narrations stress the caliph's rage as he was reading this letter. Some say he fumed and his face turned a dark shade of red. Others that nobody would dare look him in the eyes for the whole day. Eventually, when asked by a secretary if he'd like to dictate a reply, Al-Rashid ordered the quill and paper be brought to him instead, so he could personally respond. He wrote, quote, From Harun al-Rashid, commander of the faithful, to Naqfur, dog of the Romans. I have read your letter, O offspring of a heathen womb. You shall behold my answer before you hear it. That last sentence was just the old-timey way of saying I'll see you on the battlefield. And sure enough, in 803, the caliph prepared a large army to personally lead into battle against the Byzantines. The most popular Arab version proceeds to mash up the next few campaigns into one long and victorious thrashing of the Greeks. Basically, it says the caliph destroyed their armies and captured the all-important city of Heraclea after which Nikephoros begged for the truce to be restored. Al-Rashid generously accepted, but as he was leading his massive armies home, the dishonest emperor broke the terms of the agreement and had to be punished once again. The caliph thus set off on another campaign against the Byzantines. There are a couple long and eloquent poems glorifying his triumph, and the story ends with Nikephoros agreeing to pay more tribute than he was originally asked for. I left out a duel between two Greek and Arab commanders and a bunch of other epic details, but I'm sure you'll agree it's quite a story. 
Now for George the Monk's rendition. It quotes a letter supposedly sent to the caliph by the emperor, as al-Rashid was menacing, totally unprovoked, towards Amorion, a provincial capital. Nikephoros wrote, quote, Why are you pleased with wrong deeds and bloodshed, and are not content with your own property, but break the old paternal oaths? Which prophet or divine teacher has taught you to do so? Has not your prophet Muhammad preached to you to call the Christian your brother and treat him like a brother? Does it please your God, who created all and cares for all, when human blood is wrongly shed? Let this not be. Or have you set out to do injustice to those who have done no injustice to you, because you have less silver, gold, and other things? But you have the most beautiful things that are hard to obtain, and which we also would like to have, in affluence from your own holy and rich land. But if you need something of our possession, we would like to give it to you in spite of that. But do not let us, as though we were immortal or godless, fight with one another. And let us not imitate the fights of the demons against mankind, for we know we will all shortly die and will stand before the unerring judge who will reward everybody for his deeds. George goes on to comment that by this letter, which was sent by Nikephoros together with some gifts, the Saracen king was brought to his senses. He sent many wonderful gifts himself and returned in peace admiring the intelligence and wisdom of Nikephoros beyond all. Aren't the differences and similarities between these two accounts just fascinating? They agree on one thing above all else, that their respective leaders were infallible visionaries who could turn a dire situation around in unique style. This is the clearest example I can think of to demonstrate the effect state propaganda has on history over time. The reason I wanted to relay George the Monk's version was because, like our Arab sources, he lived in the mid to late 9th century, a little under a hundred years after these events took place, enough time for an official narrative to take shape. It's not like either administration had an official story it was actively spreading, but the more complementary accounts of the past would naturally be propagated at court more often than others. These versions were therefore more widespread by the time our authors came around, and so they were found more credible than is probably warranted. Anyway, now that we're done with the noble lies, let's wrap up with what probably actually happened. When al-Rashid led the armies in 803, he had plenty of other commanders around him, and he felt secure enough to take his young son Al-Qasim with him. Al-Qasim was just 14 years old, about as old as Harun himself was the first time his father Al-Mahdi had taken him on an expedition against the Byzantines. So it's a fun little family tradition. Anyway, the invasion was a success for the Arabs, but conquest was clearly not on their minds. They would win a victory, then trade it for the release of any Arabs captured by the Byzantines. They humiliated their adversaries on the battlefield, but no tangible gains were made. Nikephoros himself came to the fight, not because he wanted a final showdown with the caliph, rather due to a major betrayal by one of his key generals. It seems like Nikephoros and Harun's armies camped facing one another for a month or two. The monarchs exchanged letters for a while, 
and the emperor eventually agreed to pay 50,000 gold coins for a one-year armistice. So despite being at an overwhelming advantage, the caliph settled for a large payment of tribute. In 804, the Ummah's armies raided deep into Byzantine territory, without al-Rashid this time, and again Nikephoros rode out to meet them. He turned back before they met in battle, probably due to some emergency. This, however, allowed the Arabs to attack his forces from behind, leading to over 40,000 deaths. Theophanes tells us that the emperor himself was almost killed, so it was clearly no small defeat for the Byzantines. Still, though, all we hear about right after this triumph is another prisoner exchange, and the Arabs just leave with some war booty. To his credit, Nikephoros remained undeterred despite his brush with death. The next year, in 805, he ordered that the forts along the frontier with the Caliphate be rebuilt, and he launched small raids into Arab territory. Harun al-Rashid felt that this behavior warranted a strong response, and he amassed a large army, assembled his best commanders, and prepared to go to war once more. This was the major invasion, which the popular retelling of the story places in the forefront of its narrative. Al-Tabari says the caliph had 135,000 troops, and Theophanes more than doubles that to 300,000. Both numbers sound way too high to me. I mean, I know it's the caliph and all, but still. This large force had an easy time bulldozing right through the frontier forts, and by late summer the caliph had raised Heraclea and enslaved its population. While the Arabs make a really big deal about this, the Byzantines don't seem to think it was an important city at all. Their histories treat it like any other fort around. I don't think this is merely strategic posturing from their side either. Heraclea wasn't that deep into their territory, and its raising had little impact on their control of surrounding Cappadocia down the line. Nikephoros did not face the main Abbasid army this time, and he agreed to pay tribute for peace once again. Theophanes and Al-Tabari both report that the terms stipulated he had to pay six gold coins as a tax for himself and his son, confirming their status as the caliph's subjects, a humiliating concession. The aftermath of all this warring underscored just how little the caliphate had gained from the whole affair. One narration says that the emperor violated the treaty after the Arabs left his land by rebuilding the many forts they had destroyed, ceasing to pay tribute. The Arabs reacted in less dramatic fashion than before, and their smaller armies did not achieve the resounding victories of years past. Another account even depicts the two sovereigns on good terms, saying the emperor wrote to the caliph that one of the ladies captured in Heraclea had been a candidate wife for his son, and that he'd like to have her returned. Al-Rashid ordered she be given royal treatment, and sent her back along with many splendid gifts, to which Nikephoros responded with gifts of his own. Now that we've covered all the material on the Byzantines during Al-Rashid's time in charge, I hope you are as underwhelmed as I am. In our sources and Arab history more generally, Harun al-Rashid is remembered as this great scourge of Byzantium. However, even a cursory reading of the oral material 
quickly reveals just how flimsy the basis of that reputation really is. Last time, I mentioned a narration which praises Harun for having alternated between leading the Hajj and the war against the Greeks every year. We now know that in fact he only went three times during his whole reign, and each of those affairs was greatly exaggerated in subsequent retellings of what took place. But what really gets me isn't that he wasn't there personally, nor that he gets more credit than he deserves. It's that despite thrashing their armies repeatedly while they were at the weakest, absolutely no progress was made in terms of conquest or long-term strategic gain. He could have achieved so much more with his land armies, like conquering an actual city like Caesarea or Amorion, instead of a fort town like Heraclea. He even had a navy. Instead of sending it to besiege the empire's capital, he had them raid Cyprus and Rhodes. Even when their opponents' defenses crumbled, the caliph's armies were interested in nothing beyond booty, slaves, and tribute. I'm quite disappointed in Harun al-Rashid's overall approach to this conflict with the Byzantines and find it lacking in vision. His propaganda game was strong, though, and his contemporaries and their descendants all praise his memory as the Ummah's sword and shield in a successful war against eternal, unconquerable adversaries. Before we wrap up the episode, there are a couple more powers who bear mentioning since we're on the subject of foreign relations during al-Rashid's reign. While researching this episode online, I learned that the caliph comes up briefly in some Chinese histories from the Tang era, who name him Alun. I'm not sure what they say, though there are mentions of gifts being exchanged with his rich caliphate. Accurate estimates for global GDP ratings in the late 8th century are hard to come by, but Tang China and the Abbasid Caliphate were comparably rich, both way ahead of any other states, and had about ten times more silver and gold per capita than the Byzantines. Finally, starting at the turn of the 9th century, there was a new power in Europe with the rise of Charlemagne and the Carolingian Empire. It seems Charlemagne's conquest of Italy was what brought him into contact with the Arabs, who dominated the Mediterranean around this time and we hear of various gifts and ambassadors exchanged between his empire and the caliphate. Two memorable gifts were an African elephant named Abu Abbas sent to the new emperor, along with a sophisticated mechanical clock which ran on water. A few sources claim there were attempts to form a military alliance, either against the Byzantines or the Andalusians, but a joint attack on either never came to fruition. The positive relationship between the two leaders probably contributed to Harun al-Rashid's fame in the West, as no other caliph had established diplomatic ties in Europe before him. The caliphate was clearly ascendant during al-Rashid's reign. Its neighbors regarded it as a fearsome foe on the battlefield and a rich and prosperous land with which they would be fortunate to trade. It's a great reputation, and while most of it was well-earned, it is clear that the war with the Byzantines is blown way out of proportion in Arab histories. I think the glorification of Harun al-Rashid as some military genius or powerhouse is out of line and unfortunate. By praising an area where he displayed some of his poorest judgment, it does more than hide his flaws. It obscures his true strengths and accomplishments. 
but there's no reason to despair yet. We've barely scratched the surface and still have plenty to say on the complicated figure of Harun Rashid. Next time, in about four weeks since I'm not going to make the next release, we'll turn inwards to discuss his policies and reactions to internal uprisings against him. Here on The Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power.